it's a little difficult in the somberness of this moment to speak. Um, but I think it's still important to keep pressing in and understanding God's heart behind some of the things that enslave us and things that hold us captive, things that are sinful we may not even realize are sinful. Um, I love and appreciate Alan. Thank you, brother. You know, one of the things about money and economy is it's behind a lot more things than we may give thought to. So we're talking about abortion. Well, one of the chief drivers of abortion is the economics of affording a child. And we have believed the lie that children are not a blessing from God. They are a cost. This fuels a big part of it. Because we've made ourselves God, as Alan was also alluding to, by forsaking him as Americans. Um, the church needs to rise up and be a light and a lighthouse, shedding light to the Democrats and to the Republicans. Because we have tried for a variety of reasons to align ourselves politically, and sometimes that becomes too tight of an alignment where all of a sudden, instead of the church being the light and the lead, it's the other way around, where we say, well, we have to have so-and-so and such-and-such so -and -such will make a compromise to get what we want. And the church, no matter what, on any of these issues, I think still has the responsibility of standing up and speaking the truth and that light. Um, but economy touches sexual immorality. What, where does, who benefits from sexual immorality? but all the people who are in the slave, the sexual slave trade, the business of pornography, the business of television, movie, whatever it is. I mean, there's a lot of money to be made in that as well. Um, you know, I was just thinking about what happened with Robert Kraft. So we're from New England. He's the owner of the Patriots. He's Jewish. He just won a peace prize in Israel for his philanthropy. And the guy got caught, busted in a massage parlor. There's a massage parlor in this building. I don't know what's going on there. Maybe it's a great massage parlor, but maybe not. And so behind that, we may sometimes rationalize as people, oh, you know, it's just a little favor. It's just a little thing. It's just a little something. It's not going to hurt anybody. But what they found out behind that traffic, that ring that was going on in Florida, was that people were being kidnapped over in China and these other places. and dragged over here against their will and put in substandard conditions is bad. It's not just as innocent as a transaction or what have you and someone made some money and, oh, well, at least they're alive and they're getting paid. Well, not really. They were dragged here against their will or whatever. I mean, it's just, it gets all out of whack. People do a lot of things and are motivated by money. Um, Brother Allen brought up greed, and greed is not good, as uh, it was once said the opposite by one Gordon Gecko of the movie Wall Street, and he was trying to make the case for greed is good, but we, we rationalize, even in the church, even amongst believers, that greed is good, because look, if we're doing things to make money, and the money we make helps the church, or does mission, or does this, or does that, or it brings good and a blessing, and God wanted that blessing for us, we have to be careful. 
Because the source of all good and blessing is God, not this money when it becomes animated. So money is a tool. It's, an, it's, it, it's, it's neutral in itself. It's just an instrument. It's just uh, something that can be used for good or bad. But when the devil gets a hold of it in our hearts, there are spirits behind it that charge it, animate it. And like, oh, man, if I don't have this money, then I won't be able to do. If I don't have this money, I can't take care of that child, then I have to, you know, i got to have that abortion. And so when a spirit gets behind the tool and the devil's in it, that's where it gets all messed up. And if for as bad as greed is, fear of a lack of money is probably even more insidious and can plague the church. Well, what happens if I don't have enough money to pay rent? I have this, I have that, I have this income, I have this coming in, I have that coming in now. Will I make it? You know, we as Americans rely on ourselves. We trust in ourselves, even within the church. I'm guilty of this. We feel as though we can control things, make it happen. You know, American exceptionalism is because we can do it. We have the can-do attitude. But really, when push comes to shove, we take our next breath, our next heartbeat. That's on God. We can't do anything about it. We can't control it. We can't make it happen. We can't put our best foot forward. We can't, as a type A personality, like manage it into submission. So when you really uncover it all, it's, it's about who do you trust. And God is asking us as a as the world, as people, in this day and age of innovation, technology, incredible economy, etc., who do you trust? Do you trust in your bank account? Do you trust in that income, your donor streams, the technology you use for donations? Like, what? Who are we trusting? This is an important question. I think that we all have to search our heart about, because God is looking for a people, especially leading up to His return, and a church that says, no, my trust is in the Lord. And if this economy goes south, I'm going to be okay. If my bank account tomorrow got frozen by the government, which, by the way, it did in Cyprus not too many years ago, and I can't get money from my card or the ATM, will I freak out? What will I do? Will we kill each other for something? You know, we're in a, already a divisive environment. Imagine if the economy had a problem. Imagine if we couldn't get a hold of money. Imagine if the government programs that fuel a lot of our economy like were no longer working or couldn't be funded. So these, these are not speculations. These are actually more realities to come. You know, if you, you could look at that supernaturally, hearing the voice of God about it, and we could also look at it just naturally and say, wait a second, this doesn't add up. This isn't sustainable. We're borrowing this. And one little fact for you is um, healthcare today, and healthcare is a big area that's really complicated, and it's it, it, it's it's so good in helping people, but it's so enslaving in that it costs so much to fund and fuel these days. And then you add lawsuits on top of it; it's even crazier. So, here's a statistic: it's something to the effect of, for adults in America, the expenditure for medicine or anything, any medical service, product, or good is like ten thousand dollars a person. 
So for a family of five, that's like $50,000 in cost. So this is not about insurance premiums or whatever. This is just the actual cost of the good or service being sold. And do you know what the average income in America is for a family of five? It's right around $65,000, $72,000, something like that, depending on what year. Think about that. Let's say it's 70000 50,000, 70,000, how does that math work? It doesn't work. You know, we're taxed at higher rates than whatever's left would be there to pay for healthcare. So we've got the best healthcare in the world, congratulations America, but we can't afford it, it's not sustainable. So yeah, these things are mounting and they're building and we need to really understand this message as part of what Dave is saying, what Alan's saying, we all need to look at this and examine, let the Lord examine our hearts. Like, this is now, I guess, back to my testimony. So in 2001 was my first calling to come out of Babylon. And we can co go into a little bit what, the, what does that mean. And it happened for me on a business trip out to the West Coast. We were calling on... Um, uh, the CEOs and CFOs of some major banks, global banks and commercial banks out on the West Coast. And um, I had this understanding and fear that because the economy had taken a turn, if you remember the economy of 2000s, there was the tech bubble, it burst. And on Wall Street, people were getting laid off left and right, not too shortly after that. So I was really starting to get concerned, like what's gonna happen? I've never not been without a job. I've always worked, I've always been successful. I've always had these things go well. And I'm praying, I'm at my bedside praying, Lord, I don't know what I'm gonna do. Like if I lose my job, like then what? And I had been looking for this other job to take after this particular job that would have been a better job. And for me, this is a very scary time and um, so I'm praying bedside in the Mandarin Oriental Hotel in San Francisco, many floors up, and I get, the Lord gives me Isaiah 52. I open my Bible, it's Isaiah 52, and he gives me the passage that says, and you can read along with it, um, I think Isaiah 52, 9. Let's see if I can pull it up here. second. And so some context as I'm pulling this up, Isaiah 52 is a parallel reference to Revelation 18. It is a call to come out of Babylon. So why did John the Revelator get the same message for the future? Revelation 18, as the people of Israel got the message back in Isaiah's day. He was forecasting the time where Judah would come out of Babylonian captivity, not too many years in the future, probably hundreds, I guess. Um, but he wasn't speaking necessarily, although the scripture can have dual meanings, right? He wasn't speaking necessarily of the end time um, coming out of Babylon. But he was speaking of the Israelites coming out of Babylon. So anyway, in verse 
thank you. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Be clean, you who bear vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out with haste, nor with flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. And this was my message. So I'm concerned losing my employment. Um, what will I do from here? And the Lord is saying to me, I felt like this was a comforting scripture. Like, okay, Greg, you're going to leave where you're working today, but it's part of my plan. You're going to come out. Now, I had no idea what that meant. I did not know this meant coming out of the symbolic Babylon that we'll get into a minute of what are these systems and what does Babylon look like today. But what I did get out of it was like, okay, the Lord's got me. He's comforting me. He's saying it's not going to be in haste or flight, but you're going to leave. And don't touch any unclean thing. Like, leave behind whatever uh, concerns or hang-ups you had about that last job. Like, I'm taking you out. I'm moving you on. So little did I know that this is going to be a life message, this coming out of Babylon, also a message for the church. And this, you know, when I met Jonathan back in 2010, this is where we found our common ground out in the parking lot of Grace Chapel in Lexington, Massachusetts. Hey, you've been studying Babylon? You got that word? I've been, the Lord's really been pressing into me about Babylon. This is now nine years later, and this is after several other things happened where I started to understand and press in, okay, you weren't just taking me out of a job. You were actually showing me that there was an importance of the church and myself personally coming out of, depending on, reveling in, profiting from this great harlot, which has the whole world deceived. So you might think, oh, great, come on, like capital markets, capitalism, it's good, it's God. Well, not sure, because while money is in itself an instrument and innocent, are our capital markets and are our capitalistic system today innocent? And I would proffer to you it's not. It's not innocent. We talked about the illicit things earlier, abortion industry, sexual immorality. Let's just talk about banking. Why did the financial crisis happen in 2008? People were getting exploited. And by the way, it was a co- responsibility, right? So people were being exploited with high interest rates in what were called subprime loans for homes. Okay, so there is a problem because God specifically says in Proverbs 22, do not exploit the poor. Do not charge them interest, let alone high interest. This is called usury and it's abusive. And here's the thing. Our systems, what I would say, are becoming Babylonian, our systems are more and more depersonalizing and, and de-emphasizing relationship and people, and it's turning it into systematically uh, processing people as numbers. It's taking people out of the equation. You may understand today, and many of us all have mortgages. Well, God never intended for us to be in debt as believers. He never intended us to give our houses a surety. But sure enough, I did, because that's the American dream. That's the American way. That's what you do. It's tax efficient. You get a deduction. You invest the difference. You know, there's all sorts of ways of rationalizing it, but this ultimately becomes oppressive, and it enslaves us. So we know debt enslaves biblically. That's also in Proverbs 22. Um, 
But what we may not realize is that our, our financial obligations can cause us to make choices that aren't God's best and highest. So we have our bills, we have our needs, we have our wants, and we can rationalize, like, well, what should I do? People talk to me all the time about, like, I can't afford to live here anymore, so I need to move over here because I'll save money and then I'll be able to meet my obligations. But did the Lord say, move? What's the Lord say to do? You know, there's a scripture that speaks about um, there were two men who were deciding, we're going to go to such and such a city, and we're going to go there for a year, and we're going to make money, and we're going to do what we can to profit for their own benefit or their own welfare. And what does the, what does the scripture tell us? They're rebuked. I think it was Paul, but maybe... Maybe it was James. We could look at which scripture it is. Thank you. So he, he rebukes that notion. Like, why, why are you talking about buying and selling and making a profit and taking business into your own hands when it should be what you ask is, is it the Lord's will to do this or that or any given thing? So here we're seeing the super, the super imposing of an, sort of an economic bent, and these are believers, I'm presuming, the way James is writing about it, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to have these plans, it's, again, self-sufficiency, money, self-sufficiency, desire for the gain or what have you, but instead we should just do what the Lord says, and did he not say, if you seek after me and righteousness, you'll have all those things, you will be taking care of anything that you have a need for, does your father not love you and will he not provide? So that's hard to do in our current structure economically. Um, the temptation is there constantly to just take care of it. We run spreadsheets, the inputs, the outputs, the balance sheet. We make it match. We make it work. One of the other things that I felt like the Lord was showing me through the, this process of coming out of Babylon, coming out of these mindsets, coming out of the dependency on these systems and the money was, and this is part of the Reformation I feel like God wants in business, Hey, look, you don't have to look at things, Greg, as the spreadsheet and the bean counting alone. I can create new things from nothing. I can, it's not a scarcity mindset of like, let's divide up the pie. There's only so many pieces. Let's make this work. But instead, it's like, no, if you do my business, I'll take care of your business. You may lose money on this client because I asked you to, because they needed it but I can give you two more clients tomorrow that are very profitable. So don't take God out of the equation. And it's like this is the lesson that I think that the scientific mind believing in Christ needs to know or the, the financial mind in Christ needs to know. The engineer needs to keep in mind because there's the God factor, right? There's the miracles that can occur. God can do he can provide things with no money at all, right? And so we've, come, we've kind of come into a mindset and mentality in America, also in the church, if something has to get done, you've got to have the money to do it. Do we not think that way? I mean, so, but what about God? Have you ever experienced a miracle where God did something without money? I bet you have, right? I, we have. Like, as we've gone through this process, it's been crazy, upside down. It's been 
in some ways nightmarish, but in other ways miraculous and amazing. Um, but it's like, yeah, we needed a car. We couldn't, we didn't have any money to buy a car. We prayed through it. This was a great experience that I had with my daughter where she, coming of age to be able to drive, wanted to have a car to drive. So we prayed instead of her getting a car that Bridget, my wife, would get a car and then Claire would get her old car. And wouldn't you know it, God answered that prayer and like within a month, Someone gave us a car that probably had a value of $10,000. And it was a good car running, good condition and all that. So God, we didn't, you know, the American mindset, my old mindset was, well, if you need $10,000, you go make $10,000. If you need $10,000, well, then you need 10000 in donations or you need whatever you need. Um, but God is encouraging us in the days ahead, in the days leading up to his return, don't count on what we count on in America as normal. It's not going to be like that. This is a bit of Dave's message. This is something that people have seen, many people have seen that America is going to go through difficulty. Uh, the economy is not going to last. The stock market will not always be at new highs. Um, in fact, money has failed many times in history before. All you have to do is a little research and you can find out that no, no empire, let alone economy or currency, has lasted very long in history. They've all failed at some point. So are we prepared as God's people to trust in him instead of our economy, the income of donors? You know, a lot of people in ministry will receive money from people like, uh, who, who have much right? And one of the great things is the generosity of Christians giving to one another. But a lot of ministries are built around don't, big donors. You know, if we can get the big whale who has like a lot of dough or a lot of income, that's a great benefit to a ministry. Sure. But what if the economy is such where those big donors, they don't have money anymore. They don't have that big income anymore. Have we thought about that? What will happen? How will it work? And if you look at Jesus' ministry, I think it's very instructive because he never depended on money for much of anything. If you look carefully at the Scripture, I mean, unfortunately, there are teachings that are out there uh, which would teach, oh, no, Jesus was very wealthy. Jesus had a lot of money. Oh, don't be surprised. Like, look at that garment he wore. That was a very rich garment. Look, the Scripture is clear. There's very little... In fact, I think nothing where it says Jesus used a hundred shekels to buy this. In fact, the opposite is in the scripture. They had to pay the tax. They didn't have money. They f he gave the instruction to Peter, like, go fish, and when you do, you're going to find this fish, and you open its mouth, and there'll be a gold coin there, and you could pay our tax. This is not like, Peter, you're a fisherman. Go back to work. Hire those guys again fish for a few months, go to that city, make some money for a while, and then come back and your part will be to tithe and give to this ministry. We don't see that. We don't see a pass-the-plate mentality. Jesus didn't go around fundraising. You know, what we do see is the generosity of people being released into the kingdom and the ministry. We see the generosity of women, for example, that are spoken about as wanting to support out of their heart's desire the work. And who was in charge of the money box? Judas. He was a thief. 
he skimmed a lot of money away. Um, remember the whole situation of the perfume where he was the one complaining the loudest about, we could have sold that for a lot of money and given it to the poor. Or I could have skimmed in half of it. But the point of that is not that they didn't have money or money was like filthy lucre, I can't touch the money. That's not like that. It's like, where's the dependency on money? You don't see it out of Jesus' heart. In fact, he gives the disciples various tests at different points. When he, they fed the 4,000, fed the 5,000, remember that? Well, one of the responses, Jesus always, and I love how he is such a great teacher and discipler and model, role model for us as a leader. He turns to his disciples and he says, you feed them. They're hungry. Yes, they are. You feed them. And so they came up with their idea of how are we going to do this. And there's two different accounts in the synoptic scripture. One says the response was, well, we have... Uh, some money in the box, let's go buy some bread, but we're not really going to be able to buy much bread. It's not actually, we can't actually afford enough food for 5,000 people. Another response was, well, send the people to buy their own food. Like, let them figure it out. We can't solve it, so they'll do it. And of course, we know Jesus had neither one of those solutions. He said, no, there's a better way. Let's use what the generosity of this boy is willing to release, and let's pray, let's bless it, let's multiply it. So there's a kingdom concept without money, which is a multiplication concept. God can use the money or not use the money. In this case, he used no money, but all those people were fed. There was an abundance. There was bread for all. There was fish for all. There were 12 basketfuls left over. Okay, so if our economy doesn't support our donations or collapses or we have issue there are ways that god has we've had to live that life as jonathan was explaining in our family of well okay so we don't have any food but we know god's going to provide so how he's going to do it and people send us food gift cards grocery sacks you know we go from no nothing in the cupboard to the same day like three times more food than we've ever had in the cupboard how do you figure that? Like that, that wasn't, there was no money that was transacted. It was just the generosity of God sending people, just like George Mueller. You know the famous story about the orphans and not having any milk or bread that morning, and God just sent people. Um, so it's to say, in the midst of our trillions of dollars of economy and debt and the power that is behind money, there's a greater power. It's God. And he can do it without money. He could do it with money, too. He can release plenty of money. But I think what he's wanting to do with the bride, and this is this message, is man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from my mouth. You know, the temptation of Jesus to turn the stones into bread was the temptation of the flesh. I'm hungry. But it was also the temptation of, Take it into your own hands, and you can make your own provision. You can make your own bread, which is like a euphemism for money. Um, and we know that that's not right, and he, of course, refused it. But also, there was the test for the Israelites, right? It was the test in the desert to receive from God supernaturally. No money was going on in the desert either. 
Uh, there was no, like, we got an income, we bought our goods. No, they had simple food from the manna from heaven. And God required that of Israel. So let's think about that and process that. As we, as we have personally, as a family, have gone through our desert time trusting God, sometimes you just get what you need. And it's simple. Um, but it's, it's, it's adequate. And it can even be in abundance. Um, and why did the Israelites have to go through that trial? It's the same message in Deuteronomy 8 that's spoken. A lot of people will quote Deuteronomy 8, uh, especially of a prosperity mindset or theology, because De- Deuteronomy 8.18 says, God is the one who gives power to produce wealth. We hear this quoted all the time. Oh, yes, God is going to bring me the wealth. But did we read the beginning of the chapter? Because Deuteronomy 8 says the reason you went through this terrible trial through the fiery desert or the desert where the fiery insects bit you and all this other stuff was to test your heart. It was to prepare you to go into the promised land where everything's going to be provided, a land of milk and honey. But first I had to test your heart. And specifically what was said is so that you would not take credit for having done this. It's the concept of, and if you read it, if you go into Deuteronomy 8, um, God was speaking to the Israelites saying, you know, you don't want to be arrogant and think for a moment that your hands did this thing. You made this bread come. You provided for your own vineyards. You built those houses, and you were so successful that you did this or that. God was saying, like, don't think that way. Because that's a self-reliant perspective. It's an arrogant perspective. It's like saying, well, I'm really good at what I do. America's really good at what it does. We're the leading nation in this technology and healthcare and that and thing and this thing. But really, there's a lot of pride behind that. And not a, oh, well, God did it. No, we did it. We, someone was talking earlier about like the distortion in science about you know, messing with God's creation and in our own ingenuity we do things um god is all for technology and uh blessing and helping and what have you but what he's not for is the pride of taking credit for it and that's kind of this test i think that's the test for the body of christ in the u.s is will you take credit for what i've done will you presume that what is in your hands was as a result of your efforts, your hard work, your ministry, your jobs, your what have you. Um, that's, I think that's the area where God wants us to go low and be humble and say, no, Father, I didn't do it. All those times you blessed me, that was you. Forgive me for taking credit, even in the natural gifts that you gave me, in using those but then claiming credit. No, Lord. I admit it. That's not me. That's, that's you. And that's, I think that's the position that God wants us to be operating in. And in that, you know, he, he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It's like there is an economy of grace there, too, which is like this abundant life and provision that God makes by his grace. It is part of that 
I can create new things. By my grace, you can achieve this. By my grace, you can be resourced. By my grace, you can accomplish what I've called you to do. Don't ever take credit for it. And this is the lesson like all throughout the Bible over and over again. Okay. Um, it's five o'clock. I don't know how long I've been going for, but um, I wanted to open up this too to a little Q&A. Um, I wanted to share briefly before that, a, a lot of the focus in the past when I've given this talk has been about, here's my testimony, here's what's happened, here's the miracles. I felt like, too, what God wanted me to share with you all is that going through this has uh, been, as I've mentioned earlier, it's not easy. It's very difficult at times. And I really am getting pressed in by the Lord that understanding the fellowship of his sufferings when you, we travel by faith, trying to pioneer something, trying to do something for the Lord, believing, but then it's, it's so hard, it seems like there's opposition, it seems like there's setback. It seems like we get a miracle, but it's not accomplished fully. You know, if you've been in a season like that, it's a desert time, it's a pruning time, it's a time that God uses to refine us for sure, but it's also a time, and this is what I'm kind of wanting to speak about or testify to, of where it's, it's not any problem in you. It's just I'm asking you to endure this suffering because I'm worthy. I did it for you. This is the fellowship of his sufferings. And if you want to see the power to help people, if you want to see the resurrection power to be applied, we know from Philippians 3 that we need to not only have the uh, sharing and the understanding of, re of Jesus' resurrection power, but also the fellowship of his sufferings. And there's nothing wrong with you or with me necessarily if we're suffering. I think a big part of persecution that we've dealt with and faced is from the church and from good Christians who believe, I don't think this is right theology, if you're doing what God wants you to, and you're in the will of God, you're blessed by God, and things are going to be smooth sailing. Favor is going to pop out for you everywhere. And think, you know, you, you will be wealthy, you'll be well off, everything will be well with you. That's kind of this Americanized understanding, unfortunately, for somewhat, uh, it's, it's not a true full picture of Christianity. Like, look, there is a part of this which is totally true. Heaven is abundant and amazing, and it's going to be incredible, right? Heaven on earth is going to be incredible in the same way in the millennial kingdom when all things are restored. So there's no doubt there's treasure in heaven. There's beauty in heaven. There's abundance in heaven. There's prosperity in heaven. There's no lack in heaven. There's no sickness in heaven. There's no nothing in heaven that's bad. So if that's prosperity theology, that's, that's true, but the problem is we live in a life where we are training for ruling and reigning with Christ. We are in living in a life that is evil is in this world. People are suffering. We are waging a battle. It's won on the cross, but it has to be acted out in the church. And people are going to suffer through that. We are going to suffer through that. That's what Jesus said. In this world, you will have trouble. He didn't say, in this world, it'll be like heaven. Once you know me, heaven on earth. No, he said, in this world, you will have trouble. 
but take heart, I have overcome the world. So our calling in this life is to be overcomers, not really um, just going through and being blessed. Um, no one likes pain. No one likes to suffer. You know, the scripture says there will be no so more sorrow, no more tears, no more suffering. That's what we all want. But are we called to that in this hour? Are we called to that now? Or are we in a situation where it's a life and death battle over men's souls who are going to hell? Is it worthy? Is it worth it to have the fellowship of his sufferings in order to see this come? I think it is. I think that's what the scripture talks about. But it's hard to go through. It's hard to endure. It's hard to endure that pain. But, you know, it's like I got that word back in 2001 about coming out of Babylon. That's Isaiah 52. The very next scripture, which has sort of just been revealed to me lately, Isaiah 53 is the suffering servant. How our God and our king was abused, was marred, was beaten, suffered. He's God. And we are called into the fellowship of those sufferings. It's not because Greg did something wrong, therefore he must suffer. That's not what fellowship of his sufferings is. It's not that you did something wrong. This is punishment. It's not punishment. It's actually a blessing, but it's hard to grab a hold of it, right? That, you know, we know the scripture. It's easy to say. The one also from James um, that says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you endure trials, when you endure suffering, when you endure pain. That seems crazy, upside down. Like, who wants to suffer? Nobody wants to suffer. But yet, if we understand it, that we're going through this life and whatever we must suffer temporarily to identify with Christ in what he did for us so that we can help others, so that we can be the peaceable fruit that God wants to release into the earth, so we can have a compassion for people who are also suffering, so that we could be used as pliable, moldable instruments on the potter's wheel, that's good. That's good. So we should count it as joy um, because God can use that. And um, there's nothing wrong with us. You know, I, I think that part of this, uh, the lie of the enemy, is that when we suffer, there's something wrong with you, with God. Someone's got to be to blame for this suffering. It's like, not necessarily. Like, it's just maybe required of us to endure to fight the good fight, to keep going, to have that thorn, even if it means by God's grace we overcome it rather than it being removed. God will use it. I think Paul is wise when he says, I've learned how to be content whether I am abounding in the heavenly provision and the wonderful things of God or abased. I go through shipwreck. I go through trial. I've been beaten with 39 lashes multiple times. I've gone through this. I've gone through that. He did it for the joy of the Lord. He did it for God's purposes, you know. So it's in our country, we should embrace that if it's the will of the Lord as Christians to say, you know, it's worth it. God said I have to die 
if need be. We have to die if need be. We have to put it all out there. We have to say nothing held back, nothing preserved, Lord. I, we turn it all over to you. We have to release it all over to you. We, we have no right to have anything without you. That's not right. You said that the man will uh, lose his life, uh, and then he uh, is able to find it. But if he tries to save his life, he'll not. He'll be. He'll lose his life. It's the same principle. Um, that doesn't sound like heaven, but it's a requirement of surrender. It's a requirement of humility. Um, so we go. We come out of Babylon. We come out of the dependency on any system, any money, any economy. God can do it with or without that. We must suffer through what we will in this, in this life, in this world. But we know that the truth in Isaiah 54 is equally true and we ultimately will enter into, which is stretch out, expand your territory, restore the waste places, receive the uh, restoration of the Lord, receive the healing of the Lord, receive um, the uh, expansion of what God calls you to. And I, though I turned from you for a while, yet I love you and I'm planting you anew. So this concept of coming into the promises of God, living the kingdom life today, bring, ushering in the millennial kingdom, believing by faith for that, receiving those promises, even yet while we must go through what we will, you know, this side of life, this side of Jesus' full rule and restoration. So it's like this continuum of all those things. It's coming out of Egypt, it's going through the trials and the desert and the difficulty, and it's coming into the promises um, for God's purposes, for his glory. So it's just about, for, for me personally, it's about learning how to live in that paradigm and, and to go through some of these suffers. I mean, it's, it is hard when you are at the risk of being thrown out of your house onto the street for 10 years long. That's hard to deal with for a long, long time. And, um, but God always makes a way of escape. He always makes a way of provision. He always makes a way of a miracle to get us to where we need to go. Um, and I think that's the lesson. That's the understanding is like, not your way, Greg, but my way. Not what you want, but what I want. <coughs> And in that way, we can be in a position to really multiply for God, to multiply for him and his kingdom. So do people have any questions you want to ask? Anything about what is it about this coming out of Babylon? What is it about this trusting in God instead of money? How do we do that? Any question is fair game. Anything you guys want to ask, and we can just go into a deeper conversation and let the Holy Spirit shed light on us to what he wants to say. So I, um, I kind of wrestled with God to ask this, but I really feel unction to. Um, suffering. Are we... I got to make a confession that at times I feel ashamed to take out a bottle of medicine in the church. Um, I feel really exposed right now and vulnerable. Yeah. 
I, I... I, I, I sometimes don't know if I'm relying on God or, me, or medicine, but the pain is unbearable at times. So there we go. That wasn't even a question. I just had to get it out there. Thank you. Lord, let's pray into the... Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Lord, we just pray for your mercy and your grace and your healing, Lord. And whatever it is that we suffer from, Lord, you are worthy. You will get us through. Lord, we thank you for um, your grace to endure. Lord, we rebuke any deceiving spirits that would say it's your fault for taking that medicine. It's not because uh, the Lord loves you. He loves each one of us. And he sees the suffering. He sees our suffering. He loves us so. He doesn't want us to blame him, and he doesn't want us to blame ourselves. And, you know, in this world we have our trouble. But, you know, even what we're seeing right now, in this dynamic in the moment of where the body of Christ can come together and comfort those who are mourning, comfort those who are suffering, help those who are suffering, releasing the gifts in the body, who feels led to pray for the healing right now of this condition? Lord, we know you are good. You do not require us to suffer unnecessarily. Yet, um, we are awaiting the fullness of our restoration, our healing, and all of the goodness that you want to pour out. So we just release that in Jesus' name to you and to the body right now. Lord, we thank you that you have every provision made ready. You have every need met. Even in our suffering, you give us the grace, Lord. And we just uh, speak now life, wholeness, health in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. You know, part of what you're wrestling with and what I've wrestled with, and I mentioned this briefly, is like, okay, if I'm suffering, what's wrong with me? What is my problem? What is my deficiency? Why, Lord, why? And... Um, God has really just been speaking to me, saying, like, Greg, it's not about that. It's not about that. You just trust me. I love you. You're right. It's like, it's like an identity thing. It's like the Lord wants me or any of us, when, as we suffer, to realize his love and his joy for us. Because if he's asked us to do whatever we must, um, that is the counting of joy. And even I just, I tapped into something new for me back in 2016, Grant and I were together and we were doing the 10 days and I just sensed so strongly the Lord's pleasure in what was going on in the church in Connecticut and his pleasure in me and, and, and not, there's nothing to be ashamed about in saying that. It's like, you know, I, I was like, oh no, no, not me, not me, not me. But it's like, no, it's okay to like suck that in and say, oh Lord your pleasure, your joy in us. And what's your name? 
Savannah, the joy that the Lord has in you, His pleasure in you, it is mighty, it is amazing. Lord, let us not deny that. Let us understand it. Let us embrace it. You love Savannah. You love us, Lord. You pleasure in us, Lord. Oh, you love humanity, Lord. Oh, God. It is a struggle in this life sometimes, Lord, but yet you have promised. You have promised that there will be that day where there is no more tear. There is no more pain. There is no more suffering, Lord. But yet people are suffering right now. <laughs> it is our responsibility as a church to respond, to step out and meet, be your arms and feet, be sent out, Lord, for the broken, for the lost, for the needy. Lord, forgive us for where we have simplified things. We have not acknowledged your reality. We have tried to come up with doctrine to explain you. That's not right. Lord, show us your way. Show us your mercy. So show Savannah your touch today, Lord. Lord, forgive us where we've judged situations. You said, judge not others, for you will be judged in the same measure. We don't understand why people suffer sometimes. And Lord, if we forgive us for where we have misjudged others who suffer, where we have presumed to be like God the judge when we had no business, because we don't know. We don't know what people have been through. We don't know the full story of what's going on. We don't know that individually, Lord. But you see all. <clears throat> you love us no matter what. You love us when man does not, Lord, but you've called us to love our fellow man as you love us. And let us be that. Let us be that flowing out, pouring out, Lord. If one must suffer for the benefit of all, then so be it. Let us be that one. Um, I think it was Isaiah who said, here am I, Lord, send me. So let us be the one, Lord, willing to suffer because there's a great, because there's a greater good that you want to accomplish in our fellowship with your sufferings, Lord. Let us be sensitive to that. Lord, let, us our, let our identity, this is sort of my lesson of uh, the recent time, let, a, let a, our identity be nothing more or less than your love for us and your pleasure in us. That's it. We don't need to be, our identity doesn't need to be anything else. That's it. Your pleasure in us, your pleasure in Savannah, your pleasure, your love, your desire for us, Lord. That's our identity. That's why we exist. That's what we live for. Your love and your pleasure. Lord, from that, let us draw joy, which gives us strength to run the race and endure whatever we need to. Lord, show us your love and mercy and your grace. Thank you, Jesus.